why is history important? Well, it's important because it just straight up makes certain things which seemed clearly obvious, not so obvious. Uh, and, and in this case, hopefully open up the possibilities so that I think especially for people of color to identify with something called the food movement uh, by seeing how it's actually part of their own legacy or the legacy of people they've, they've long been working with for. Antonio Roman Alcala has a lot of ideas to share about power building in the food movement. He's an organizer and a thinker, a theorizer and a farmer. Antonio strikes me as someone who manages to have his hands in the soil and his eyes on the horizon at the same time. We had a long talk at his kitchen table in his tiny Berkeley apartment, and I got the impression that he's often dreaming of possibilities for a collectively owned, radically diversified farming future. But he's also deeply rooted in and actively drawing from history, which is why, of course, I was so excited to talk with him for this podcast. I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and this is the 11th Calag Roots podcast. That means we've made 10 other Calag Roots podcasts that take some deep dives into the history of farming in California. If you haven't heard those yet, please check them out at www.agroots.org or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can definitely follow today's conversation with Antonio if you're diving in here but you'll have a lot more of an insider understanding on what we're talking about if you listen back to a couple of podcasts in particular, podcast number 10, Politica del Mole, and podcast number one, There's Nothing More Californian Than Ketchup. Those two stories come up specifically in my conversation. And that's the cool thing about these Digging Deep episodes, really. You get to listen in on what people are thinking about our other storytelling episodes. This series is called Digging Deep, Conversations with Food Movement Leaders about the History of Farming. In these conversations, we're going to learn about how food movement leaders' understanding of the past and how what they learned from Calag Root stories has shifted their thinking about their work. All right, without further ado, let's get to it. My name is Antonio Roman Alcala. I'm from San Francisco, California originally, now living in Berkeley. These days have been working with a a diversity of groups uh, and some of the organizing work I've been doing, um, but I am a actual actually a student, a PhD student right now at a place called the International Institute of Social Studies in The Hague. Also, I am one of the the co-founders and organizers of a thing called the Agroecology Research Action Collective. Um, so those are the main things that I've been working on. So more on the scholarly end, but then I also have been very involved lately on. Uh, in this question of how do we build bridges across different sectors in the food movement and specifically the sectors who have been marginalized. So uh, folks in the Central Valley working uh, primarily from farm worker based communities, uh, urban based more food justice kind of organizations, small ecological farmers and particularly what we call farmers of the global majority, what used to be called minority farmers and um, indigenous people and how these sectors have a lot of different histories and lineages of of work and resistance around agrarian and rural issues. Um, But how can we sort of create uh, more alignment or alliances amongst them? And so I've been organizing what we call agroecology encuentros. And they're not, it's not something I invented, uh, but it's a sort of format that stems from a lot of what um, international uh, agroecology and food sovereignty groups do in terms of internal education and base building. Uh, And so basically hosting these events where people come together and have dialogues around these different issues. 
I asked Antonio why the term agroecology resonated with him. Not many food movement activists, at least in this country, choose that particular framework to describe what they do. The story he told about that reveals a lot about how the words we choose to talk about our work can really shape it. I think I went through a, a series of sort of learning points and, and lineages of concepts, right? Because we kind of often do work without having concepts for them, um, or we find a concept that, that then we want to build our work around. In my case, um, I was already extremely interested in and involved in politics as a broad thing. Uh, being born and raised in San Francisco, a pretty politically active family life, um, I was already really, really concerned and involved in things like the anti-war movement, um, anti-Iraq war movement, um, anti-gentrification kind of work because I'm from the mission in the in San Francisco, which is one of the worst hit by gentrification. Um, so I was already doing a lot of oppositional political work in my teens. And I came to food simply because there was a point at which I and the, the sort of community I was involved with um, organizing uh, had this not epiphany, but just sort of recognition that we really wanted to have political work that was about what we were for, not just what we were against. And and to me, uh, as I started to learn about food systems issues and link it to my sort of broader interest in environmental issues, it seemed clear that food was something that people could directly do. And so through that interest and in just having a more, um, you know, prefigurative, utopian sort of kind of politics to be able to live is how I ended up starting Alamany Farm in 2005, which is an urban farm in San Francisco. Then through that, I, you know, got into the notion of food justice because, um, you know, there was people promoting the idea of food justice to ask, like, well, how does that food get made? And what are the power relations that relate to people's access to food and to, to address the justice issues? And I really liked that for a while. So I definitely would have, in those years, especially around 2008, nine, I would have probably considered myself a food justice activist. After that is when I started hearing about this idea of food sovereignty, which became even more interesting than food justice because food justice was talking about the justice aspects of the outcomes a lot in the food system and did and did sort of propose that you know community control and sort of it had a little bit of a democratic ethos um, to it but fundamentally it didn't really address the nature of power in our society which is um, right now so broken right and so I think food sovereignty, which I also saw as emerging from this international movement of some of the most marginalized people on the planet, gave this idea that ultimately if we want to solve any system, any issue in the food system, whether it's because we're interested in environmental issues, we're interested in gender equality, we're interested in racial equality, whatever it is that ultimately comes down to these questions of sovereignty and who decides. So to me, as someone who came into the whole food thing from a very distinctly political angle, I was like, that's, that's the framework for me. Um, of course, here in the US, I don't think almost anyone uses the term food sovereignty to describe their work in the food movement. The term sovereignty itself is a big question mark for a lot of people, understandably so. And so I don't think that that's necessarily the, the sort of concept uh, that everyone needs to be using for any particular reason. But associated with food sovereignty in that international movement became agroecology. And agroecology, to me, 
started appealing more recently, partly because of its international relevance, the fact that it is a common language um, used across movements who are fighting for more or less the same thing, um, but also that it has this, this these sort of multiple strands of legitimacy. So to me, you know, food justice might have legitimacy in the case of any sort of like any fight for justice where you're saying there's an injustice, let's have there be justice. But but agroecology in terms of, you know, the actual science of growing food and how there's so much science on the agronomic aspects of food growing um, that point to agroecology as a solution to climate change and a zillion other issues that relate to um, to food systems. At the same time, there are lineages of practice. So there's the more recent ones with, you know, biodynamic and organic and these other sort of codified practices of agroecology. But there's also indigenous wisdom that goes thousands of years, you know, and and that what I found in this organizing of the encuentros and that I think is really fruitful is that agroecology can be that sort of empty space that is filled by the particularities of people's lineages. And again, it can it can be that space that creates a we from different particularities that don't have to um, lose the value of those particularities. So indigenous people being able to say, well, we've been practicing agroecology for thousands of years without calling it that is just as valuable as farm workers saying we deserve dignity for being part of the uh, the production of essential sustenance for all of society. Um, that these are different aspects of agroecology, right? So you have the science, you have the practice, and then you have the social movement. And I think that the social movement aspect of agroecology, unlike some of these other terms, really foregrounds that you can't have political change without social movements. It's not gonna happen in a technocratic way. There are always power relations to be addressed and to be continually addressed. So that means not just you know the evil corporations and their policymakers versus the the angelic social movements, but within social movements, we're going to have to deal with our own power relations internally and try to address them and make them better. And so I think that agroecology just as a term because of its lineage has a lot of these dynamics that I think are super, super useful uh, when we're looking for something to coalesce around. After I had a clearer understanding of where Antonio stands in orientation to the food movement, I asked him about an idea that I've been thinking a lot about lately. It was part of our last podcast, Politica del Mole, or The Politics of Mole, and it was offered up to us in that story by food scholar Melanie Dupuis. Dupuis calls for a move away from some of the rigid ideology that the food movement often uses. It calls some foods or farming systems good and dubs others bad. It thinks of some foods as clean and offers up others as dirty or unhealthy. She'd rather that we use a new model, not based on purity or cleanliness, but one that takes its inspiration from fermentation. She imagines us putting different diverse ideas about food and farming together, letting them kind of rot together, I imagine, like a fermentive pot of kraut, and coming up with political ideas in this process that are wildly diverse collaborations, recognizing our interdependence rather than holding up one particular person's or one particular culture's authority on food. I asked Antonio what he thought about that. When you ferment, you become something new. Mm -hmm. And I think what I agree with that, I mean, the point is you got to create a new unity. You got to create a new sense of we. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, I really feel like it's important to not shed who people feel they are already, because I think 
you know, those are the resources as so many of, you know, your stories and, and my stories especially attest to, like these lineages of people's lived experience, their histories, their ancestors, um, spirituality. I am not personally a very spiritual person, but I see the power of people having that um, as a as a resource. And that to, to, to say, you know, like if you were just a sort of typical traditional communist, you'd be like, no religion. It has to be, you know, this utopian version of the future where everyone's just a worker, right? Or I mean, where everyone comes into the revolution as workers. And I feel like that's a failed model, the idea of like get rid of who you are and just relate only to this new we. I think it has to be both and somehow. There needs to be a more rhizomial or from bottom up creation of those alignments rather than a determination from above like this is the strategy or the topic or the approach that's going to get us somewhere. Um, so I definitely believe in that um, that approach. I think the challenge is, is what does that look like given the fact that we exist in a place where those differences have such impacts on on who we are as people, on how we are able to live, on how we were able to engage different spaces and political processes. I think that it's one thing to say, oh, we should come together in unity and diversity, um, but you know that can be said from a position of privilege without really attending to the fact that not everyone can unify so simply or easily. Um, so I think the question of how you actually create that unity and diversity is probably more important than the question of should you at all, you know. And speaking of how you create change, our conversation also dipped into questions raised by our very first podcast, There's Nothing More Californian Than Ketchup. That podcast asked questions about what it means when a social movement demands that an institution change. In some ways, there were major victories won when people asked, very publicly, who the public universities should be producing agricultural technologies for. Antonio's participated in some current activism, asking that same question. So in brief, Occupy the Farm um, was a land occupation, an illegal land occupation of a piece of land called the Gill Tract, uh, which happened in 2012. And that occupation was successful in the sense that it challenged the university's then plans to develop the entire track and turn it into things like housing and retail space um, uh, and actually ended up preserving 10 acres of that land, uh, which is not necessarily in perpetuity. There's future battles potentially, but essentially preserved it for agricultural research and now a two acre uh, collaboratively managed agroecological farm. I see a big tension, and I don't know if it's really resolvable, between visionary kinds of ideas and oppositional kinds of energies and the accommodations by the system that can seem like successes and really are successes in many ways. I don't want to belittle them, but that end up basically taking the wind out of the sails of a movement. So the institutionalization of a success that was fought for at the risk of arrest and more um, you know, was actually undermined the potential of a larger, larger success. And I think that that's a question that can't be answered in advance for any particular sort of movement, right? You can't say at what point a, 
a reform is enough or, you know, it's kind of hard to say in advance what people should do. But I do think it brings up for me at least the importance of holding space and respect for those visionary and oppositional energies that continue to push. That I think that's what I've seen that I don't like in the movement is so much berating of people whose ideas don't fit the boxes of what's currently presented as acceptable or doable, reasonable, realistic. Um, I find that pragmatist notion of social change pretty uninspiring and pretty deadening for movements. And that that energy, those kinds of perspectives tend to get amplified in these moments of institutionalization. I think for me, my, my ideology, and I will just admit that it's like that, is that I think that this thing I brought up about sort of the reason why the Encuentros process is about this sort of bottom-up, base-building, visioning sorts of process is that you can't just institutionalize an idea that exists statically now and expect it to be productive in 30 years. You need to institutionalize a process where that, can, where that process can continue. Antonio, as you might be able to tell by now, is very focused on the future, specifically on creating structural change right now that moves farming into a just future. But he's also clear that to do that, you have to draw heavily on an understanding of history. A healthy plant needs strong roots. We're kindred spirits in that way. Why is history important? Well, it's important because it just straight up makes certain things which seemed clearly obvious, not so obvious, uh, and, and in this case, hopefully open up the possibilities so that I think especially for people of color to identify with something called the food movement uh, by seeing how it's actually part of their own legacy or the legacy of people they've, they've long been working with for. There's this whole thing about how the food movement is like white and neoliberal and all these things are sort of repeated and, and they have a basis in a good sort of righteous critique, but they become these tropes about the movement which obscure all this history which shows that that's not actually always been the case. Um, so even if it is true now, it begs the question of why is it like that if it hasn't always been this way. That is another thing that comes up in history is um, the rem remembering the connections between things um, and how that illuminates possibilities that don't seem pr present in, in the here and now and how often we we think of things being only, I mean, you talk about like this legacy of this deep sort of land reform ethic that's all over the world, but especially in Latin America, how now it's, you know, you try to talk to people in sustainable ag about land reform and it just seems so distant impossible abstract and uh and yet there are many threads that connect to any one individual's work now that you can see this lineage actually still has weight or still has potential um and so i think only by looking at the history where you see times in which these things somehow bubbled up and became possible again or at least in people's minds became possible um I feel like, yeah, without knowing about that, we could easily just be super cynical. But Antonio is not a cynical guy. He's endlessly hopeful in a clear-eyed kind of a way. Times are dark for a lot of folks right now, and the news cycle is definitely hard to witness. But I think one of the roles Antonio plays in the food movement, both as an organizer and a scholar, is to light up a path forward. So I'll end this episode with a particularly powerful note of optimism from Antonio 
something for all of us to hang on to. But I do feel like, back to these stories, that the fact that the store that these visions never go away is itself part of the 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 solution. The fact that that you can never get rid of the idea that the, the land belongs to those who work it. It's an idea that can't be destroyed. So it's only about how do you manifest that idea as common sense. And I think that so many of the examples we've seen are times in which that common sense has become more common, enough that it then becomes a, a possibility. Thanks for listening to Calag Roots Podcast 11. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories at www.agroots.org. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Please subscribe. And if you haven't left us a review, please do it so others can find us. This story was produced by the California Institute for Rural Studies. And I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, director of the Calag Roots Project. Special thanks to Antonio Roman Alcala for talking with me for this episode. Music for this episode was produced by Zylo Zyko, Holy Coast, and Loyalty Freak. And the Calag Roots theme music is by Nangdo. And a big shout out, of course, to Calag Roots funders as well, including the 11th Hour Project. 